to Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 24. We're in the series of the Gospel of Luke, and it's been an amazing journey already. The Lord's blessed us, and we're almost halfway there. Praise God. Luke 14, 12 to 24 is our text. Starting in verse 12 of Luke 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Verse 16, But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must, I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Verse 19. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said to, to him, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the uh, servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. The master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you. We pray that you will be with us. Be with me, Lord. Help me uh, with my voice. Help me, Lord God, this morning. Give me the strength, Lord, to preach your word fervently for you. Uh, worship in worship and in praise to you, Lord God, and not in the desire to please man. Help me not to fall into that te- temptation today, Lord. It's very easy to look people in the eye and want to see reaction and applause. Guard me, Lord, and guard us for wanting our ears tickled. Help us to feed off of your word. Help us to know that your word is what brings life to our bones. We live out of every word that proceeds out of your mouth, Lord God, and apart from you, we can do nothing. You are the vine, Lord, and we are branches. Father, you are the vine dresser. Do the work in your field today, we beg and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said something that I uh, liked, as always. Charles Spurgeon is one of my heroes. He says, we do admit that we make mistakes. Though we set them down to weakness rather than willfulness, we apologize for our infirmities rather excuse than accuse our own hearts. And so many of us struggle to admit ourselves as willful in our sins. 
and instead make excuses for what our hearts have done. Spurgeon was right to say that we like to hide behind our sins and label them as weaknesses rather than admitting to willful disobedience, which should humble us to repentance and change. And so that is precisely what the lawyers and the Pharisees did in our text. They lived in sin and displayed only outward righteous deeds, which we all would agree was the case according to the Gospels. That's what we see throughout the Gospels. And what we also learn is that they lived in cliques. Cliques comprise individuals who form close-knit, exclusive social groups due to shared interests, backgrounds, or characteristics. I believe this happened because they were sinful in their practices while professing to believe in the law of God. Close-knit, exclusive social groups that separate themselves from the life of God's people and accountability, they do it because they don't want to lose the image they've created. So if you're in the clique, it's probably because you're very comfortable in that clique. And only a few know you. You don't want the world to know you. You don't want your church family to know you. So you stick to yourself and only to a close amount of people. The image is a public personality that is different from who the person truly is. Jesus dealt with this in Matthew 23, 27. He said, Woe well, to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Yes, Jesus said that. Yes, Jesus sometimes wasn't nice. Sometimes truth is not nice. Sometimes truth is exactly what you need to hear. I always tell people, you know, uh, Truth hurts, but lies kill. So give me the truth any day. So why does this happen? Our text tells us why. And we'll get into that later. But many a ministry have created a ministry personality that is far from who they are in secret. And the lack of accountability and integrity lends itself to treating others with contempt. This is how we get celebrity pastors and leaders. Pastors and leaders who are far from the brokenness and needs of their people. Now, Jesus wanted to deal with this problem in our text. The religious leaders in our text weren't even close to admitting their weaknesses and their wrongdoing. They couldn't even see that their hearts were sinful and lost. They believed in the right things about God. But you know what? They lacked application and authenticity. What does it mean for it to, to, to apply God's word? What does it mean to be authentic? Well, the only prerequisite is to be real. Sometimes real means that I have a real mess to give to God. Sometimes real means you get to see the parts of me that I try to hide. Sometimes real just means to understand that God already sees what I'm trying to hide. So you might as well go into prayer, bear it all, because he sees it all. Application and authenticity is what these lawyers and scribes failed to have. And so for our outline for today, point number one, the exhortation, verses 12 to 15. The exhortation, 12 and 15. And then second, the excuses, 
verses 16 to 23, the excuses. And then lastly, point number three, the exclusion in verse 24. The exclusion. And so point number one, the exhortation in verses 12 to 15. The man who invited him was the same in verse one of chapter 14. A ruler of the Pharisees was the one who invited Jesus to his home. But there were also lawyers and Pharisees there who also asked of Jesus in verse 2. From what we know in the Gospels, the Pharisees and lawyers and scribes often treated people with contempt, especially those who were poor and sick. To deal with this, Jesus tells the ruler and his guests, the Pharisees and the lawyers, this actual parable before us. Jesus said, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite, he says, friends. Don't invite your friends. That sounds weird, right? You'd like to invite friends over to the house, right? You know what to cook for them. You know how to host them. But he tells them not to do this. Don't do it to those of whom you have particular interests with. Those that you have intimate terms with or are in close association with. Don't invite them, he says. Second, he says, don't invite brothers. This can mean literal or physical uh, member of the family, but it can also mean someone who shares the same beliefs. I often wonder how many times have we created a clique in our own and we only stick to people who believe exactly what we believe. Number three, relatives, people who are extended family members, those who belong to the same people group, it could also mean. And then lastly, he says, don't invite rich neighbors. Rich neighbors are those who have abundance of earthly possessions who are well supplied. So why does Jesus tell the ruler not to invite them? Well, Jesus tells us exactly in our text. He says, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. So what is the problem with being repaid for an invitation like this? I mean, I'd like to get paid back. Amen. When my wife is an excellent cook. We feed you good. I expect you to invite me to your house and try to cook like my wife, right? It'll be a mutual, right? It, that's the right thing to do. Give you the chance to try to outcook my wife, which you're not gonna do. What's the problem with being re repaid? Jesus talked about this back in Luke chapter six. There is a problem with this, right? So go with me to Luke chapter six. Bring your Bibles. Luke chapter six, verse 32 to 36. He dealt with this already. Luke chapter 6, verses 32 to 36. He makes it very clear that Luke 6, 32 to 36. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from who you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Then he says, verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. You get the point? What is Jesus doing here? He's exposing what's inside, what's in the interior, underneath their religion and practice. 
The problem there is that they were fixated on the temple. Gain from their friends, gain from their brothers, gain from their relatives, gain from their wealthy neighbors. Now this addresses the click problem we talked about. It is not about what you can get from relationship, but what you can give. We live in a very transactional culture. I give, you give back. That's not the kingdom of God. Their desire for places of honor, as we covered last week, was detrimental to their spiritual health. And it may have been spread to their relationships with others. Jesus speaks of doing things not for what you can gain, but you should seek what you can give for a greater reward. Do you give to get? Because that's not Christian. Do you give to get? You should. But you just said, Lois, you shouldn't be. Well, hold on, though. You should give to get. The question is, what should you look for in giving? We should want a return, but not from those who we give to. We should give for a greater reward. So there is an incentive to give. Jesus has said, love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then he says, and your reward will be great in heaven. Could you do it for that and not for the temple? So Jesus, in a kind way, was correcting the ruler and his company by revealing their core issue. Their core issue was that they didn't admit weakness and were unwilling to be corrected. They couldn't even see their hearts as sinful and lost. They believed in the right things about God, but lacked application and authenticity. And it was all because at the core, they wanted something in return for their righteous deeds. Because of this, Jesus goes on to exhort them in verse 13 of our text. Read it with uh, verse 13. But when you give a feast, he says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. But when you give a feast, invite the poor. In other words, invite the economically disadvantaged. Invite the crippled, the maimed, which could have meant someone who did not have a leg or was severely handicapped. Or the lame, those who were crippled in the feet and limping. Or the blind, those who cannot see. In other words, culturally speaking, the rejects of society. A lot of times that culture equated those sicknesses and issues to demonic spiritual powers, to them being unclean. Go to the unclean. So they place value in relationships based on what they could get from the relationships they had. Now, relationships can be mutual. Jesus isn't saying that a healthy relationship just goes one way. I'm not, I don't think he's saying that. But some seek and pursue relationships for self-gain and glory. They use people to get ahead. They look for relationships that will add to their ego and self-importance. Jesus is telling them not to seek relationships for that. Jesus says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the disabled, the lame, and the blind. And then in verse 14, he says, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 
It can also say you will be favored at the resurrection of the just. The blessing comes from doing for others for nothing in return. From them. And the blessing comes later. Not now. Doesn't matter what the prosperity gospel says. Prosperity gospel says you can have it now. Jesus is saying, yo, you got to wait for the resurrection of the just. Don't do it for now. Do it for later. Because if you receive now for what you do now, Jesus said it, you've already received your reward. And I don't know about you, but I don't want something from somebody in comparison to what God can give me. Hold up. Keep it to yourself, because when I go to heaven, God's going to give me mine. So in other words, in all this favor, being repaid will come, and that should be the motive for giving. According to our text, pursuing relationships primarily based on what you can get from them is a Pharisee trait. You're just like them. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be no Pharisee. The wrong treatment of those who cannot give to you in return is not Christ-like. Do you give to get? Can you give to others and genuinely not want something in return? Man, the world will be changed if the church thought, thought like this. Here's another question since Jesus specifically used examples of people who were, have been cast out and deemed useless in society. Check it. Have you found yourself with those in need who can't give back to you? Have you had company of people that you know can't give anything to you in return? This is a mentality that I'm afraid Lancaster City has developed. It's a cancer in our city. There's people that are so innovative, so creative, and so business hungry that they'll step over their bodies to reach their goals. And build relationships artificially because this relationship is going to help me in my business. I remember one time me and Lynette, uh, when we were young adults and didn't know too much, you know, we were growing up together, new family. Remember, honey, that pyramid scheme we ran into? Right? And I remember that joint. Like, this dude was like, yo, man. Like, he didn't say yo. He, he was from the suburbs. So he didn't say yo. Uh, that's me. That's me talking. But... <laughs> Dude, the, the dude, yeah, he said, and he didn't say dude either, but <laughs> he didn't say that. So he, he came into our company and, 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 and started talking to this couple that we loved, that we cherished, that were really good friends of ours, and promised all these advantages and said, you know, you can get your own business. Think about it. He would, he would paint this picture of not going into work again. You know, and it was just like, yeah, I felt it because I was working at YNS Candies. I didn't want to work there anymore. And I was just like, man, if I could not work anymore and just have money, just come in. Just come in and just live my life. Be at the beach, he said. You can be at, on vacation. Imagine just being on vacation and getting paid for it. And then he showed us the chart. You know, if you do this. You know, this person gets paid, this person gets paid, this, and then we bought it, you know, we, we got in because of the relationships we had with the couple that actually bought into it. One of the things that they said that was very cultish was said, you might want to rethink your relationships. Because if people aren't going to help you reach your goal, those are the people you shouldn't be with. And I was just like, that didn't sit well with me. I thought about Jesus right away. 
how he condescended low and gave for nothing in return. Oh, I'm just like, that's funky. You know what I mean? That's not gospel. So it ended up happening that that was the case. It was a scheme. And he tried to separate people for his advantage. It could be a pyramid scheme. It could be anything. As a matter of fact, it could be cliques in churches. There are systems, mindsets, and even church cultures that are set up to neglect those in need. We don't want to be one of those. Jesus says not to neglect people in need, but to give to them for nothing in return. For, he says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is the motivator, saint. We should give for what we will receive at the resurrection of the just. That day when we will see God face to face. The Pharisee, actually, here in our text, believed in life after death. We know that from Acts 23.8. They believed in a future resurrection and described it as sitting at the table in a banquet feast in heaven. So what Jesus said to them was very familiar to them. It was their theology. They understood there was a resurrection of the just, and they looked forward to it. But Jesus told them to invite the economically disadvantaged, the maimed, those crippled in the feet, limping, and those who could not see. He exhorted them to do this because they weren't doing it. So did they get the point Jesus made here? Verse 15 answers this question for us. Check it. It says, when one of those who reclined at table, after Jesus said this, with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Does that sound like he got the point? No. He missed the point. Instead of giving the correct theological answer, they should have confessed their sins. I'm not doing that, Jesus. Forgive me of treating people differently. No, but they gloated in their theology. They should have said, Lord, forgive me for treating those in need with contempt. So the question here is, who actually is the lame, the blind, the crippled? The one who said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. The brother's blind, y'all. The appeal Jesus is making here still needed to be received to get them to see how they were in the clique and how they kept people in need out. What did this response reveal from the Pharisee, from the ruler? It revealed that they were blind to their excuses to do what Jesus told them to do. Our second point, the excuses in verses 16 to 23 Jesus begins to illustrate how blind and worldly the ruler of his guests were. He deals with those with correct doctrine, but who have faulty practice. Listen to me. Do you hear that? These are people that have correct doctrine, but faulty practice. So don't come to systematic theology thinking you got now the, the keys to the kingdom and you got the answers. No. The answer comes in application. You can have correct knowledge and your soul be lost. Jesus continues with the parable of a man who gave a great banquet and invited many. Check in, starting in verse 17. And at that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who have been invited, come for everything is now ready. Verse 18. 
But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Verse 19. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Verse 20. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So a man gave a great banquet and invited many. He sent his servant to those invited because all the preparations for the banquet was complete. But they all, in verse 18, began to make excuses. Now there's three excuses here in our text. Point number one, sub-point of an excuse here, the excuse of earthly possessions. In verse 18, the first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Remember that this is in response to the one who reclined at table to Jesus, right? He's chilling with Christ. Jesus challenged them to go and to give to those in need and couldn't give back to them. That's who he wants, what he wants them to do. And then he told the ruler, the lawyers and the Pharisees, that they will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And instead of admitting fault and changing, they responded, correct doctrine, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. They could not see their ungodly desire for earthly possessions and how that desire caused them to mistreat those in need. These were snobby, snobby brothers. <laughs> These brothers were all about themselves. The excuse for not attending the banquet was I have bought a field and I must go out and see it, he says. So there seems to be a preoccupation with what this person possessed. Someone who would want to see their field to ensure that the good crops were coming and the workers were working. This is someone preoccupied with their earthly possessions to the point of neglecting and rejecting the invitation made to them. The word excuse here is a strong word. It's not just like a passive, like, uh, it's actually to shun and refuse, to shut out, to force someone out. It is not just saying I can't go, but I don't want to go, so go away. Can you imagine being invited to a wedding and they pay for your plates? I heard that's a problem nowadays. Right? So you pay for someone's table and plate and they don't show up. I think I remember a story where somebody actually took somebody to court for that. That's gangster. I, I don't know about y'all, but that's gangster. <laughs> I, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't go that far. But the, 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 the plate was, you know, and everything's paid for, and you're just like, no, nah, I don't feel like going today. That's a shame, right? The lesson here is that a desire for earthly possessions deceived the religious leaders who profess to believe. This prevented them from seeing Jesus for who he is. And Jesus already dealt with this in Luke chapter 12, in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide this inheritance with me. And Jesus addressed him by telling him to say, he said, Take care and, and be on guard against, he says, all covetousness. Then he says, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You won't find life in your stuff. Jesus followed up with the parable to illustrate the issue, which concluded in verse 21. 
to say that the one who lays up treasure for himself here and ignores or rejects God is not rich towards God. So this results in their soul lacking what is needed on the day of judgment. This is why even today we must be careful with what we have. A preoccupation with what you possess can and will possess you. Possessions can possess you. I'm not talking about demons. I'm not talking about anything. Your stuff. Your lifestyle. Your position at your job. Your career. Your identity. And the stuff that you've attained is the very trap you set for yourself. Who are you, saint? You're not your stuff. That's not you. You're made in the image of God. These things can possess you to the point where you are so blind and crippled spiritually that you can't see Christ. This happened to be the case with the ruler, Pharisee, and lawyers in our text. The second excuse, the excuse of earthly provision. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Now, this preoccupation here concerns the worry of being provided for which can also tie into the first excuse. Remember that there's food at the banquet, but this person is preoccupied with providing for themselves. The excuse here is that this person is shutting out the invitation for their need to provide for themselves. Why is it that God is our last option? When the bill can't be paid or something pops off, I make a phone call before I call upon the Lord. Where's our priorities? This is an excuse proving that they didn't see the invitation as more important than their need to provide for themselves. And another said, lastly, the excuse of earthly pacts and pledges. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. This is dealing with the preoccupation with prioritizing earthly relationships over a relationship with God. Marriage represents the most significant union we have. And Jesus used it to say that rejecting the invitation because of, of a preoccupation with it will cause many to be at loss on the day of judgment. Even something as sacred as marriage can't get in the way of your relationship with God. It doesn't mean marriage isn't necessary and important, right? Pastors... 1 Timothy 3, 4 to 5, if someone aspires to pastoral ministry but does not know how to manage his household, how, Paul tells Timothy, will he care for God's church? There is a priority. But my wife ain't my God. My covenant relationship with my wife has nothing in comparison to my relationship with God. That's how I become a better husband to my wife. By loving him more, worshiping him, finding time with him so that I can know how to act right. Yeah. See, I tell people sometimes in, in our marriage counseling, you know, we don't try to get people together sometimes. We try to say, yo, this, this, and then find out vertically what's happening with y'all. Yeah. And then sometimes I, what I tell people is it takes one to fix the relationship, not two. Because it took one to fix our relationship with the father. 
So I tell people, if one, someone in the marriage gets a hold of God and loves the Lord their God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and worships God and loves the other selflessly, I mean, that's a win. They'll win them over. But the problem in our church culture here in America is that we prioritize our families over God's calling. This is what I call the golden calf of the American church. I've heard it before. I got to be about my family, and they don't go to church at all. They don't contribute to the needs of the saints. They don't go to the poor. They don't go to the main. They don't go to the crippled. I don't got time. I got, I got to be at home. Well, maybe home is your God. And maybe that's your problem. J.C. Rao says, it is not so much the open breach of God's law as it is an excessive attention to lawful and innocent things which ruins many men's souls. It could be good things that are bad things in your life. There's nothing wrong with moving up the corporate ladder or having a career, but there's everything wrong with prioritizing that over a relationship with God. So Jesus lays out these three excuses as charges that expose what they were doing and saying. Then he continues with the parable in verses 21 through 23. Stay with me. In verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Verse 22, and the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. Verse 23, and the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. So notice that the first invitation given in the parable was to those who had a field. Those who had oxen and were married. But the things that made them wealthy and honorable were the same things they used as excuses to shun the invitation. So what does the man of the banquet do with this problem? He tells his servant to bring in the poor, the disabled, the blind, and the lame. Then he says, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled uh, blind and lame. In other words, bring people in that would appreciate my banquet. Who wouldn't have excuses. Who aren't distracted by the things of the world. Who, who aren't stubborn and blind to who Jesus is. Jesus said before, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blind people receive their sight. And the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, Jesus said, and deaf people hear. The dead are raised up, Luke 4, and people experiencing poverty have good news preached to them. Jesus also said before, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Then I remembered the widow in Luke 21 who gave a little in comparison to those who gave much, and then Jesus said she gave more than they did because it wasn't about the quantity, but the quality of the giving. We live here in America with so many excuses and so many distractions. It's difficult to tell a culture that they need God when they feel like they got everything. I ain't going to that church, man. They can't get the heat right in here. 
I, I, somebody told me, yo, it's hot in here. I put the AC on. Now y'all going to complain that it's too cold. <laughs> That's what we do. It's easy to be self-righteous and forget that God has called us to people who don't have it to give back. Inviting your friends, your brothers and relatives or neighbors, wealthy neighbors who can hook you up. That's easy. It's convenient to be around people who can pay you back, who are familiar. It is possible even to have sound theology and not have a heart for those in need. And to develop a clique in a circle that no one can come into. What excuses have you made that have caused you to reject the call of God in your life? To step outside of your circle and embrace those in need who are different than you. It may be the poor. It may be the disabled. It may be the lame and the blind. Or it could be someone from a different culture. It could be someone who worships differently than you. It could be someone who doesn't look like you. Who doesn't eat the things you eat. Who doesn't play the games you play. Why is it that we're so connected with like-minded people? Maybe it's because we like to hide behind that and not be uncomfortable with the people that God's called us to reach. That's why I love the diversity in our church. You're probably sitting beside somebody that you wouldn't rock with. Somebody you wouldn't hang out with after service. But we do have one thing in common here. We all need a savior. Thank God he didn't do that with us. I can't think of a greater chasm or difference than a holy God and sinners. Yet God invited us through the gospel and we were brought in by grace. Jesus in the immediate context here is dealing with God's covenant people who would reject him. And as a result, the Gentiles will be brought in. <laughs> so the idea that the lawyers and Pharisees had about themselves as the only people who would be raised in the resurrection of the just was addressed by challenging their preferences. Maybe your preference or preferences is overwhelming you to the point where it's compromising your faith in God. The resurrection of the just would include all people, Jew and Gentile. This brings correction to not allow earthly rewards and status to prevent us from serving those in need who can't give back. Instead, we should do all we do for the reward we will get in heaven. Another question I had was this. Who indeed is poor? Who really is crippled, lame, and blind here in our text? We answered that earlier. It is those who make excuses. The religious. The ones who knew their Bibles. Who rejected this great invitation. Our last point, the exclusion, the point Jesus is making here is that those who live an exalted life, even with correct theology, made excuses for not practicing what they preached. God forbid that is us, Christ alone. The root cause of hypocrisy comes from a desire to exalt the self, which leads to the mistreatment of those in need, and it maintains cliques in churches Paul dealt with this in 1 Corinthians about factions among them. There was cliques among them. I, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and he's like, we're nobodies. What's interesting is that at first, invitations were sent, and the invites were rejected, 
This would have been what the rulers, Pharisees, and scribes, and lawyers did, those who knew the law of God. But check it out. In the second, invitations weren't sent. Notice that. The master of the house sent his servant to bring in the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. They weren't invited. They were brought in. They were picked up. One word study used it to say they were carried in. That is everyone who comes to faith in Christ. We who were blind, crippled, lame, spiritually were carried in. And God brought us in as his own, his children, to a great feast, to feast with him for eternal life. So there will be no excuses for rejecting such a beautiful invitation. He calls men and women everywhere to repent and to turn to him for salvation. So what excuse do you have here today? If you're a Christian with sound doctrine, have you practiced what you believe? I don't do this flawlessly myself. But you know what? If you answered as I did by admitting faulty practice, then you know what? Do what I did. I repented. I don't do what this text is telling me to do perfectly. I look for others to love and serve at times to want attention back. I've been selfish. God's checked me. Why do you get with so-and-so? I like so-and-so, like Stacy. You know, I don't mean to put you out, brother, but every time I hang, hang out with Stacy, bro, we, it's like, you know, we vibe. We, we were like enjoying each other's company. But when's the last time I was in the company of somebody who was very challenging? Stacy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sometimes, no. You know what? You can't choose your family. You're born into that. You're born into the kingdom of God. You can't choose your brother and sister in Christ. So get over on yourself. Reach across the aisle and find somebody who you normally wouldn't get with and hear the story. Hear how the Lord has worked in their lives. That's why we're here. We're not here to develop cultural cliques. We're here to be the body of Christ. So for those who have not come to faith in Jesus, what excuse do you have today to not repent? What's holding you back from giving your life to Jesus? Paul said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, he says. Saved from what? The wrath of God. God's wrath is an expression of the righteous, the righteousness of God in relation to your sin. You've offended a holy and righteous God. And Romans 1.18 says that while you're doing that, you're suppressing the truth about him. You know he exists. But you suppress it. Then the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of his glory. We deserve God's wrath and we're guilty of sin. Right now, if you died, you will face a holy God and you'd be in trouble. But God, 
being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what he did for us. And he can do that for you if you place your faith in him and trust him. He's not looking at you and saying you, you don't deserve him. He knows you don't deserve him. But he gave himself to you fully in Jesus Christ. Believe and repent today. And the Bible says you shall be saved. Father, we pray and thank you. Be with us today, we ask. Help us. Help us to be Christ-centered in our pursuits, in our ambitions, that we will seek to glorify you. Help us, Lord God, with this, these differences that we find ourselves in in the church. There's cultural cliques and ideological cliques. There's preferences that have caused walls to go up. And so we don't hang out with each other. We only hang out with those we're familiar with. Help us. So give us a missional heart for one another to reach across the aisle to say, you're my brother and my sister. Help us, Lord. Preserve our unity, I beg.